Hello and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today I'm joined by Linda Fowler, Professor of Government and Frank J. Reagan Chair in Policy Studies, Emerita, at Dartmouth, where she continues to teach and conduct research. Professor Fowler directed Dartmouth's Rockefeller Center from 1995 until 2004. She specializes in American politics and has published two books on congressional elections and a recent study on national security oversight in the Senate. Professor Fowler received a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2005 and several awards for her research, as well as awards for undergraduate teaching at Dartmouth. Professor Fowler, thank you so much for joining us during this hectic week. It's great to have you on. Well, it's always good to be doing stuff with the Rockefeller Center. Absolutely. So to get started, the past four years have been turbulent for American democracy, culminating in the storming of the Capitol two weeks ago. In what ways has our democracy been tested during this time, and in what ways has it demonstrated its resilience? Well, um, if we wanted to talk about the tests, I would keep you here all night because they have been myriad. (laughs) Um, and they've been come uh, challenges from without and from within. Uh, we saw our 2016 election um, being severely tested from without by the Russians and various other people that we haven't really identified. And, um, and we've had um, foreign policy challenges, of course, that um, have tested the, the um, capabilities of the executive branch in ways um, some of which turned out to be to work pretty well, but others do, that just seemed to be beyond the capacity of the executive to to handle. Um, mm-hmm. Internally, um, within the executive branch, there's been a, a lot of norm breaking. The way in which the president um, treated his cabinet officials, um, people being fired by tweet, um, people being um, fired for seeming disloyalty. Um, uh, this was a lot of norm breaking um, and I think has made a lot of people realize that political institutions aren't just about the formal rules of the game. You know, how many votes does it take to get, to get a policy passed or whatever, but that there were a lot of uh, informal um, uh, things that kept the government within the guardrails that have been seriously tested. Um, That was also true in the relationships between the executive branch and the legislative branch, where Congress would pass uh, in the defense budget saying that um, there was no money for the, or there was 1.5 billion for the wall and Trump wanted more. So he declared an emergency for wall building. I mean, that's not what presidents are supposed to do with emergency declarations. Um, But we also saw uh, the lawmakers themselves um, breaking norms, certainly the um, way in which uh, um, judges were handled, particularly uh, the the most recent uh, appointment uh, with very little um, uh, opportunity for input. Um, the impeachment inquiry, um, which is always a strain on the Congress and the president and further uh, sh- just 
disrupted relations between the two branches. And then we've seen problems within Congress itself, that the lawmakers are so polarized by party that it's increasingly, it's been very, very difficult for them to do anything. And so we've seen uh, legislative productivity decline quite seriously, serious drops in um, oversight of the executive branch, and uh, a lot of stalemate, which suggests that there's a great deal of stress in the system right now. Towards the end, um, Congress at least came together and worked with some people in the cabinet, notably, notably Stephen Mnuchin, to pass relief, uh, some COVID, COVID relief. They also were able to override presidential veto of the defense authorization bill, demonstrating that they're not completely helpless. But um, it's it's been a tough four years, um, both because of what members and politicians are doing to each other and to themselves, and because of the pressures that always come from outside. One of the things that's been surprising to me, if I were an enemy of the United States, I would have seized on this chaos to um, advance my own interests at, at the expense of of the U.S. And I think in many ways our enemies have been surprisingly restrained other than the, um, the cyber breaches that have, are coming. Back. Of course. Yeah. Well, on the topic of polarization in Congress, which you brought up, could the storming of the Capitol provide Biden with an opportunity to reach out to alienated Republicans and further his legislative agenda? For example, I think some believe that the relatively benign hearing on the nomination of retired General Lloyd Austin, he was just confirmed today, um, is directly related to the events of January 6th and the desire on both sides of the aisle to heal the partisan divide and, you know, get someone into the office of the Secretary of Defense. Well, given the rhetoric of Biden and his long reputation, we didn't need to have uh, storming of the Capitol to get him to say he wanted to work with Republicans. So, mm-hmm. but I think in a perverse way, there is a possibility that as those members who are hiding under their desks and being exited through scary tunnels and hearing the mob beating on their doors, that I'm hoping that it might give them pause. And basically say, if we don't make this institution of ours work better, we're going to be, we're, we're helpless before the president. We can't enforce our own prerogatives, um, except in very rare circumstances. And now we're helpless before a mob. And if that doesn't get their attention, then, then I think the Congress is just hopeless. And I've seen, you know, I've been studying the Congress for a very, very long time. I worked on Capitol Hill um, at another very bad time in our nation's history where Congress was particularly um, problematic. And that was um, 1969 and 1970, where you had constant demonstrations going on because of the Vietnam War and National Guardsmen killing students at Kent State and massive demonstrations on the Mall and so forth. and, and the trauma from that really prompted Congress to, to engage in serious institutional reform to improve its capacities to um, deal with the executive and also to manage its own affairs. So 
if they were frightened enough and, you know, came to their senses enough that we just can't go on this way, then it would might actually have been a good thing that it happened. Well, that's a very optimistic note. Uh, I now have a two-part question for you. Um, so first, this country is becoming increasingly partisan. And with that in mind, is Congress a place where the partisan divide is narrowed or where it is widened? And... Next, how does that impact the ability of Congress to remain a check on the executive branch as it was originally intended? This is something you alluded to a bit earlier. Okay, so the the partisan divisions between Democrats and Republicans are at record highs. Um, we've with this last Congress, we've exceeded the previous high, which was in 1920. Um, and at that time, you had enormous differences um, between rural and urban interests, as you do now, between labor and business, as you do now. But um, And labor was very weak at that time, as it is now. So there was um, a lot of political violence during that period of, of high polarization in Congress, as there is now. There were um, party revolts of from the rank and file against party leaders in the in the period just before World War One, leading up to the most polarized period. So there, <laughs> unfortunately, there are a lot of similarities. Um, the polar that much polarization just isn't good for our system. Um, I would say though that that what's different is leading up to the, that high period of polarization and right before it peaked, you had an extraordinary situation, which was the progressive era, where um, more progressive Republicans allied with big city Democrats, and they passed antitrust legislation, they passed banking legislation, they amended the Constitution to give women the vote. I mean, they did a lot, despite the polarization. And um this time, polarization is um, led to um, much less productivity and um, and a lot of uh, unmet needs in the country. You find polarization tends to coincide with very high periods of income in and, and wealth inequality, and again, that was a, the nineteen twenties were a very very. Um, a remarkable period for income inequality, and the same is true for the 21s and certainly 2021. 20, 20, so to build off of the second part of the question, um, how does this polarization impact the ability of Congress to check the executive branch? Well, it's an interesting thing. When the Congress is held by Democrats in both the House and the Senate, they have a lot of incentive to, to check a Republican president, for example, or the reverse, when there's a, Rep a Republican Congress and a Democratic president, and they can act in concert. So even though there's divided government and there's a lot of conflict between the president and the Congress, the president actually has to deal with the Congress. He can't just 
walk away or have a tantrum or declare an emergency or whatever, because Congress has very formidable powers to wield against a president or wield on behalf of a president. So the dangerous situation is one that has been fairly common recently, but is not something that's happened in our history very much. And that is when you have the House controlled by one party and the Senate controlled by the other party. And that gives maximum leeway to a president who's bent on imposing his will on Congress. Interesting. With the Georgia runoffs that we had earlier this month, the Senate is now split 50-50, as it was in 2001. And I think that this is only the fourth time that the Senate has been evenly divided. Um, The Senate cloture rule requires 60 votes to end debate and vote on most topics. So in your view, is this 50-50 balance a healthy check on the Biden administration or a roadblock to progress as you look at how the U.S. government will work moving forward? Well, cloture has been an obstruction for presidents, even when there's not a 50-50 balance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 60 votes, that's hard to get in, in Congress. Yeah. So the cloture and 50-50 are not um, necessarily related um, in terms of whether a, a minority of people can obstruct the will of, of Congress. What it does mean is that the Congress can't, doesn't have, the, if anybody wanted to change the, the um, cloture rule, they really can't. The votes aren't there because um, I think at least one senior Democrat doesn't want to change it. And um, the Republicans, of course, this is leverage that they will have. What it does mean, um, even if there's no cloture, you know, even if a lawmaker isn't filibustering, the people who are at the center, and this would be Joe Manchin and Susan Collins, and um, uh, I'm blanking on her name right now. This the Murkowski, the the yeah. woman from Alaska, Lisa Murkowski. Lisa Murkowski, yeah, and um, maybe Mitt Romney. That they they are the most important people in the Senate because they're the pivot. <laughs> yeah, uh, for sure. And they have incentive to be in pivot, to be pivot either because of their the way they conduct themselves as senators. Or in Susan Collins' case, because she comes from a uh, a state that went for Joe Biden um, and had a very serious electoral scare this past time, but she's a moderate by temperament anyway. So those are the folks to watch, and whether they want to throw their weight around or not is probably just as important as whether people want to filibuster. One way that you could probably change the filibuster without getting rid of it would be to make it more costly to members to do it. In the old days, someday go and rent the old Jimmy Stewart film, um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And it's a Hollywood version of a filibuster. But not so long ago, if you were going to filibuster, you really had to stay on the floor. And you had to have a team of people who would replace you, I guess, if you needed to go use the restroom or whatever. I never was quite sure how they did, how they did that. Um, but basically, the Senate physically stayed in session. 
and members physically had to hold the floor. So you weren't going to do that very often <laughs> um, on, a, on a whim. Um, so um, I think you could, there are some ways that you could tinker with the filibuster that would mean that members would really have to stop abusing it. They'd have to save it for things that were really important to them. Interesting. Yeah, I remember that um, Senator Cruz became famous in 2013, I think, for doing like a 24-hour filibuster, and most of the other members of the Senate hated him for it. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting that someone so junior could yeah. hold up the Senate like that. And that's why people hated him for it, because it was just a, it was just grandstanding. It wasn't about a particularly serious issue. Um, Rand Paul did one, too, that I think went for 13 hours. And that was a serious question of foreign policy, where as a libertarian, he had very strong views that he wanted to call attention to. Um, But now, lots of times they don't even actually do the filibuster. They just um, file an intent of filibustering with um, the majority leader. And so you don't actually have to deliver on it. And it just interesting gums up the works. Huh. Well, okay, back to the topic of the 50-50 Senate and these powerful centrist senators. Um, in 2001, Senator Jim Jeffords uh, broke the 50-50 deadlock in the Senate when he left the Republican Party to become an independent and caucus with Senate Democrats. And I'm wondering if you see any potential for such a shift in favor of either party in 2021. Well, I learned after the 2016 election to not be surprised by anything in American politics. (laughs) So I'm not going to make any predictions. I'm sure uh, there were efforts a number of years ago, I think, when Republicans made overtures to Joe Manchin. There have been efforts where Democrats have made overtures to um, well, I guess Arlen Specter was somebody who switched, and that was because he lost a primary in his party. It's a little different situation. And the question is whether, you know, whether such blandishments would really be effective or not. I think what, what would be key is what drove Jeffords from the Republican Party was the very strong anti-environmental um, stance that was being taken by Republicans in the Senate and Bush administration. And he was a conservationist and he just couldn't stomach it. So if something like that happens, and I don't know whether it would be a, a Republican who couldn't stomach what his fellow partisans were doing or, or a Democrat. So, but it's, it's a very personal kind of decision and a hard one for members to make. I see. Uh, pivoting from this topic, though, this is very interesting. You've done in-depth studies on oversight mechanisms in U.S. foreign and national security policy. And as noted earlier, we had a confirmation hearing for Lloyd Austin, Biden's nominee for Secretary of Defense, and he was just confirmed as Secretary of Defense today. Austin is the second general in four years to have been nominated for Secretary of Defense. He only retired from the military in 2016 which requires an exemption to the seven-year ban on generals serving as secretaries of defense stipulated by the National Security Act of 1947. Um, 
Is this trend of generals being confirmed into civilian positions alarming to you? And more generally, are you concerned about the state of civilian control and oversight of the military? Well, let's take the first part. I'm a, I'm against it. Uh, I'm against it for two reasons, that giving these waivers. I was against it for uh, for Jim Mattis, even though I had enormous respect for him. And he had come and talked to my class on political leadership um, once he retired from the from the military, and he was wonderful. And I just admired him so much. So it was painful for me to say, you know, they really shouldn't be doing this. They shouldn't be giving the waiver. Um, he'd only been out for two years. So the current general's been out for four. So that's a little better. Um, <laughs> but I find it hard to believe that there aren't talented civilians who are capable of taking over the defense department. And um, and my guess, my feeling is if Congress is going to have a law and they had good reasons for enacting it, then they should abide by the law and not just give waivers every time. So that's just kind of me being a mugwump, I guess. But um, and 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 the current general Lloyd Austin sounds like a very remarkable man. So on the one hand, it's good to continue his long service. On the other hand, I it, it is troublesome to me. I think what makes it less troublesome is that there were concerns um, in some quarters that the military would allow itself to be manipulated by the president and the the general marching in uniform to the church from the White House, the Secretary of Defense, um, who was a civilian, by the way, um, going along with that thing, calling in the National Guard, using National Guard helicopters to harass protesters and so forth. Uh, that was very, very troubling. And when we look around the world and see where coups typically come from, it's because some disgruntled general or colonel uh, decides to take matters into his own hands. So so the way the military handled that unfortunate event, that they, they got sucked into something that they didn't fully appreciate, I thought they handled it well. Uh, the Secretary of Defense apologized. The general said, "You know, he, he he had he hadn't realized that that's what he'd been recruited for, and it would never happen again." So that was somewhat reassuring to me. Um, and as I say, the the fact that the the civilian got sucked into it sort of means that even civilians aren't immune from bad judgment where the use of the military is concerned. So I, I think that um, that the military has to be um, brought into a different period. They've been in armed combat for over 20 years now. And it's probably time that somebody took a really hard look at the mission and the way that they're carrying out the missions and the the kinds of appropriations that they're that they're getting are they getting enough or are they not too much and we've tended to be looking just at is the budget going up rather than what's it what is it being used for and sometimes an outsider is better at doing that 
than somebody who's been in the system their whole life. On the other hand, I would guess that General Austin has a pretty good idea of where the problems are that a civilian might not be aware of. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic, and we're going to have to see how it plays out with General Austin. I Mm -hmm. know that Mattis was critiqued for stacking the DOD with too many people that he had worked with in the military, and I hope that doesn't happen this time around. But again, we'll have to see. Austin is uniquely qualified in some ways, and in other ways, he may be limited. Yeah, and and in the Trump administration, it wasn't just the DOD secretary. It was the chief of staff. It was the... The mm-hmm. National Security Council. I mean, there were gen- what was it? Trump used to call them my generals. His yeah, my generals, generals were everywhere, and uh, and it, so it wasn't just the one position. It was a, it was a militarization of national security policy, more broadly. Yeah, it was an interesting time. Um, on the topic of the Trump administration, I guess uh, in Federalist Papers. Number six, Alexander Hamilton famously said, men of this class, whether the favorites of a king or of a people, have in too many instances abused the confidence they possessed and, assuming the pretext of some public motive, have not scrupled to sacrifice the national tranquility to personal advantage or personal gratification. Although 230 years ago, this would seem to accurately predict recent events. So in your estimation, have our democratic institutions been designed with the requisite resiliency to withstand the additional pressures imposed by current dynamics like globalization and social media, uh, just in terms of presenting, or sorry, in terms of preventing demagogues from rising in this country? We've always had demagogues in this country. What's different is we've never had one in the White House. Before mm-hmm. um, the 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 guardrails have worked it to to some extent. So you had certainly during the Great Depression, you had a number of Townsend and other people, uh, Huey Long, uh, at, you know, bringing mobs, large mobs of people into the streets. You've you've seen uh, well, Joe McCarthy was another demagogue. Where there were plenty of them during the anti-war movement and the um, uh, very well-intentioned people too, but some who were quite irresponsible. And um, and you've had some in the Senate fairly recently. I don't want to name any names, but um, it's what was different is the unabashed use of demagoguery um, from the president. And that was really quite remarkable. And um, the reason why it's so inappropriate is the presidency is the one office in which the official is responsible to everybody in the country. Uh, We expect our presidents to be partisans, of course, but we also expect them to be presidents for all the people. And Trump's demagoguery made it impossible for way too many people to see him ever as their president. And um, whether it was the never Trumpers or or so forth. And um, so you could say that the system worked. He's no longer our president. But 
he came very close to re-election, and I and I think there's a very good chance had he done a better, even a modestly competent job in handling the COVID pandemic, um, he probably could have been re-elected or in a, in another electoral college victory, but nevertheless, not with the popular vote, and so that's very troubling to me. On that note, this is my last question. Um, To a large extent, democracy depends on shared values and a shared baseline level of information. So as Biden's presidency begins, are you optimistic about the future of American democracy? Well, I'm certainly not a Pollyanna. And um, let me give you the the bad side first. I think my big fear is that people are going to think, okay, we got that guy out of the White House and now we have somebody who seems more reasonable and who's at least talking about cooperation across parties and so forth. So we can all go to sleep and let, mm-hmm. and let Joe handle it. And, um, <laughs> and to me, the events of the last four years and particularly the past two weeks have indicated that, um, that there's a lot of work to be done um, at the at the level of the national government, I think that one of the saving graces is that state governments actually have been working pretty well, and there are quite a few very competent state governors in both parties, and um, and that has been a sort of a redeeming aspect of this whole mess of the over the last four years. Well, I think I already said at the beginning that if Congress doesn't get its act together and get serious about being a legislature again, uh, I don't see much room for optimism. I think that there are a number of things that if they do get their act together, they should be doing to cut the executive branch down to size. We shouldn't have 28 different emergency declarations in effect, uh, you know, just to point to the most obvious one. We shouldn't be allowing executives to uh, fill positions with acting uh, acting cabinet officials who haven't been confirmed. Their Congress passed a statute about that, and then they didn't enforce it. So there are so many places where, when you look and see what the president's behavior was, it seemed unpresidential and seemed to be not consistent with with the responsibilities of the office then you would look at the Congress and they would be allowing it. So that to me, that's the big, that's the big test. The things that make me optimistic are that we had record turnout more than we've had in 110 years. And a lot of people, particularly young people who've been conspicuously absent from the polls really stepped up this time. And, um, and I think that's, that's a real sign of, of potentially good things to come. Um, you're seeing um, some serious talk finally about how we regulate the internet, um, that we can't just let it be this, uh, have this arena, a public arena um, where that's so asymmetrical. Newspapers uh, and radio stations have to conform to fairly serious uh, rules about libel and defamation and all sorts of things. And it's been the Wild West on the web and uh, that we need to find a way to do that properly. And I was very proud of the Congress that I think they all think, both the left and the right, thinks 
stuff needs to be done with social media. They don't agree on what that would be, but I think they all understand. And they didn't just throw something into the defensive pro- authorization bill, the appropriation bill, to satisfy yeah. the president. They did say, no, this is a serious problem. We've got to spend some time on it. And I hope they do. The last thing, something we have no control over, is um, the reason why Trump got away with so much norm-breaking was that the the news media loved it. They thrive on reporting conflict, and even the more responsible news media. Um, he was, you know, every tweet was reported and so forth. There was no need for that, and it just... It just fanned the flames of division. So I think there's been some discussion among serious journalists about what their role was in creating an environment in which the Capitol was stormed, whether given how marginal so many news organizations are right now and financially, they really need to find a different model or, or they will end up promoting the next demagogue who comes around. Professor Fowler, thank you so much. This was absolutely fascinating. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, everyone. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you'll join us for our next episode, and if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.